Last time we spoke in length about the absolute disaster that was the attack on Clark Field. It was part of what is now called the Far East Air Force controversy. Why a controversy? That would be because of the odd and ambiguous nature of how Douglas MacArthur did, well, nothing. This in turn went hand in hand with the story of how War Plan Orange 3 and Rainbow Plan 5 were developed in case of a war between the United States and Japan broke out. To say things in the Philippines were not going smoothly as of December the 8th is an understatement and oh, it gets worse, believe me. It seems much like the disastrous situation unfolding in Malaya and Hong Kong, the Philippines were taken completely off guard. But today, we're gonna add a new territory in this Pacific War, that of Borneo. This episode is the invasion of Borneo. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week. I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can start, I also want to remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about the history of the Second World War? I recommend their episode on the Battle of Hong Kong. Of course, they have a wider collection of episodes on many different historical events, so go give them a look over on YouTube. So please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and help us continue to produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history-related content, why don't you go check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where you can find episodes like German Raiders of the Pacific during World War I. Give it a look, it would mean a lot to me. So the Japanese struck out simultaneously at Pearl Harbor, Malaya, Singapore, Hong Kong, Wake, Guam, the Gilbert Islands, and the Philippines. The colossal Japanese empire was nowhere close to being done, and this extremely complex and large operation to kick off the Pacific War was just beginning. Now before we even got into this mess, Let's talk just a bit about the strategic targets the Japanese had. Because let's remember, a large part of why they chose to go to war in the first place was to obtain vital resources necessary to keep their military functioning in China. The Dutch East Indies were probably the most important objectives they had. They held petroleum oil, rubber, tin, nickel, scrap iron, manganese ore, wolfram ore, chromium pig ore, castor oil, maldenum, chincona, and hell, even just salt. And everything I just listed is pretty much necessary for any military to have in the 1940s. But in order to invade the Dutch East Indies, the Japanese would need to secure footholds over Malaya, the Philippines, and British Borneo. All of these territories would be necessary to make subsequent attacks against locations in the East Indies, and most importantly, on their oil fields, 
Oil is really the name of the game when it comes to the Pacific War, and for World War II in general. The Axis powers as a whole really suffered from a lack of oil. Only Romania had any, and in no way was it enough to feed a nation like, let's say, Nazi Germany. Speaking of Nazi Germany, they invaded and occupied the Netherlands in May of 1940. Queen Wilhelmina and the Dutch government went into exile by May the 13th, and this meant that their holdings in the Pacific were very vulnerable. The Royal Netherlands East Indies Army commander was Lieutenant General Hein de Porten. Hein de Porten was born in Java and helped found the Dutch Army Air Force. He had got the job because Lieutenant General Gerardius Johannes Bernschot had recently died in a flying accident in October of 1941. He had been chosen over other candidates because he fully understood the problems at hand, having a large knowledge of the region, alongside his intelligence and initiative. Although there was one issue that was seen before his appointment, and that was that he did not really work well with civilian organizations. Van Stockenborg, the Governor General of the Netherlands East Indies, said of Hein de Porten, quote, He doesn't have the specific qualities of Berenschot when it comes to working together with civil organizations and problems other than purely military ones. He has a big mouth and operates with less tact. End of quote. So, it goes without saying, the Governor-General did not like Deporten very much. The former Benenschot was able to explain military problems to the Governor-General, while Deporten would work in complete isolation. Stating all of this, Deporten was a man who favored military order over the chaos of civil bureaucracy. As one could imagine. So, Deporten tried his very best between October of 1941 to December to modernize the army in the view of a possible Japanese invasion. The army grew to 85,000 personnel, though they were quite poorly equipped and did not have nearly enough training. Do remember, Nazi Germany controls the homeland, so there wasn't a lot coming back from there. He could count on a sizable air force, of 389 aircraft, but again, they were quite old and in comparison to the Japanese, very, very outclassed. Thus, the Knill Air Force had some Brewster Buffaloes, Martin B-10 bombers, P-40s, Wildebeests, Lockhead Hudsons, Bristol Blemheins, and a lot of stuff purchased or given to them by the United Kingdom and United States but nothing that would be capable of really challenging an aircraft like, let's say, the Zero Fighter. They had two very important airfields in the Kalimantan area of Borneo, those being Singawang and Pontinac, both of which were actually unknown to the Japanese. Now do not forget, the British hold one side of Borneo and the Dutch the other. In the British side, there was two major oil fields in Miri and Sera, the primary targets of the Japanese invasion. Marshal Brook Pompen had established defenses in the main cities of Kuching 
Miri, and the local rulers of Sarawak had organized its own paramilitary force called the Sarawak Rangers, which would defend the region of Sarawak. These Sarawak Rangers were commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Lane. The Japanese plan was an initial surprise attack against Miri and Sera to secure the oil fields, followed up by an amphibious assault against Kuching and some nearby airfields. This surprise attack would be carried out by the Kawaguchi Detachment under the command of Major General Kawaguchi Kiyotake. Kawaguchi had spent a large part of his military career in North China. He is quite a lesser known figure compared to his other colleagues. During World War I, he managed a prison camp and prided himself with establishing civilized standards. If you Google him, you will see he certainly does not fit the character of the image usually portrayed by Hollywood. He is balding, round-faced with a huge handlebar mustache. He would go on throughout the Pacific War to protest the executions of enemy senior officials. He argued with Colonel Masanobu Tsuji once over this issue, stating, Shooting defeated opponents in cold blood was a violation of the true Bushido. End of quote. This would earn him the enmity of Tsuji, who would do a lot to make Kawaguchi's military career a nightmare. Indeed, his unusual sensitivity towards the fate of the occupied sets him apart from the majority of his colleagues. Now, before we get into the Borneo campaign, I just want to update you on the ongoings back in the other areas of the Pacific War, such as Malaya where Percival made his first major stand at Jitra, starting on December the 11th. The reason that he chose to make a stand at Jitra was because it was part of the overall strategy of the Malayan defense, that being to keep the enemy as far north as possible to safeguard the airfields that they still held in Malaya and to keep and deny their use to the Japanese who could use them to launch aerial attacks against Singapore. At the Battle of Jitra, the lack of tanks was very apparent. The Japanese forces were obliterating the Indian defenders. Colonel Tsuiji, who witnessed the fighting at Jitra, reported this in his first contact. Our tanks were ready on the road, and the 20 or so enemy armored cars ahead were literally trampled underfoot. The enemy armored cars could not escape by running away and were sandwiched between our medium tanks. It was speed and weight of armor that decided the issue. End of quote. Major General Murray Leon was leading the forces on the ground. Murray Leon was an officer in the British Indian Army commanding the 11th Indian Infantry Division in Malaya at this time. This man saw quite a lot of action in World War I. He fought for the Highland Light Infantry and received a military cross for his actions in Flanders, got wounded, was sent back to England in 1916, but would return swiftly back to France. 
Once he was back, he remained in the front lines throughout 1916 to 1917. He was eventually given command of a battalion of the King's Regiment of Liverpool. With that command, he earned the Distinguished Service Order for his actions taken in the trenches at Meurthe. The citation read, For conspicuous gallantry and devotion to duty, when the enemy attacked and penetrated the line after intense fighting and continual bombing attacks, by his courage and personal example, he succeeded in driving them out and held his position against further heavy attacks with splendid coolness and determination. End of quote. He would go on to command the 1st Battalion of the 15th Royal Scots Fusiliers in 1918 as a lieutenant colonel. This was a man who saw a lot of frontline action. He was not a pencil pusher, as they would say. After the Great War was concluded, he found himself in various posts like Egypt and India. He got command of the 11th Indian Division, and unfortunately, they were stationed in North Malaya, right on the border with Thailand. As we already kind of talked about, the British were overly confident and massively unprepared to face the Imperial Japanese Army. The IGA forces were battle-hardened veterans of the war in China. Marie Leon's division looked good on paper, but in reality it consisted of two regular British Army battalions, the Leicestershire Regiment and the East Surrey Regiment, which were the backbone of the division. However, the rest consisted of four newly raised and half-trained Indian Army battalions, and three Gurkha battalions, which, don't get me wrong, the Gurkhas are like the super soldiers of the Commonwealth, and we will be talking a lot about them in the future because I really love talking about them. So many insane stories when you hear about what they can do with knives. But these three Gurkha battalions were basically all 18-year-old boys who only recently came to Malaya, so they were very green. On top of all of this, like all the Allied forces in Malaya, the 11th Indian Division had no tanks, while the IGA would enjoy plenty of them. Murray asked for permission from General Percival to withdraw from Jitra after just a few days of intense fighting. Murray was so shocked by the performance of the Japanese, he believed they were a much larger force than they actually were. This is actually going to happen quite often in the Malaya campaign, by the way. Ironically, the Japanese were outnumbered by about 2 to 1. Yamashita's war strategy was to leave the enemy off balance, and to do this, he used blitzkrieg tactics. A huge part of this strategy was to use fast-moving armor units and bicycles. You heard that right. Many of the Japanese were able to overrun and capture positions because they were utilizing bicycles. Before the invasion, Japanese military planners decided that because of the intense heat and impassable jungle, they would use bicycles as a means of troop and light material transportation. And in case you were wondering, no, the Japanese did not send over thousands and thousands of bicycles. 
the military planners learnt early on that there was enough bicycles in Malaya to steal from the locals. So yeah, they were literally just grabbing bicycles in all the little villages they could. Yamashita had his bomber aircraft used like mobile artillery, where the jungle made sitting artillery impossible for use. Thus, engagements would be started with bombing attacks on allied roadblocks and other defensive positions, followed up by tanks which rushed in to overwhelm the defenders, and when the defenders would begin to flee to take up other defendable positions, his infantry bicycle men would continuously attack and hamper them. And this blitzkrieg warfare was followed up with coastal amphibious assaults behind enemy positions to flank and encircle the defenders along the coast. Colonel Alfred Harrison of the 11th Indian Division said of this fight, quote, Fatigue had stretched the men's mind to the limit and the moral ascendancy which the Japanese achieved in these few weeks included a psychic side. The troops were beginning to attribute almost supernatural powers to the Japanese. End of quote. As I mentioned in previous episodes, Yamashita was very impressed by the German Blitzkrieg when he was a military attaché to Berlin. His coordination of the air and ground forces in Malaya was extremely impressive. Yamashita had signal officers placed in air-to-ground communication squads in operational headquarters. Everything had already been rehearsed, such as the amphibious landings, the destruction and repair of bridges and jungle craft, all of these were exercised on China's Hainan Island. And the particular use of bicycles allowed troops to move further, faster, and with less fatigue. British troops continuously found themselves driven off roads by the faster-moving bicycle infantry and kept getting encircled in pockets. This relentless pursuit had a devastating psychological effect, as we have seen. The British commanders assumed that there was many more Japanese than there actually were. This bicycle blitzkrieg, as it's famously now referred to as, reminds me a little bit of how the early Mongolian Empire would fight. The Mongolian military was fully mounted, so this allowed them to use a single army to hit multiple cities at an incredibly fast rate. This led a lot of their enemies to believe they were being attacked simultaneously by multiple armies rather than one that was just moving really fast. Now, it goes without saying, the bicycles alone did not pull off this operation. The largest advantage the Japanese had was, of course, the tanks. The British never sent any tanks to Malaya prior to the outbreak of the war, and this proved to be the crux of their demise. With the infantry on bicycles and the tanks, the Japanese were hitting the British before they could even prepare their defensive lines. Percival was forced to give the okay to withdraw from Jitra, and for the men there to go south to Gurin. The issue was, Gurin's defenses were not even prepared yet. The Japanese were simply too fast. Percival later wrote in his post-war memoir, War in Malaya, of this moment. It is as follows, quote, this withdrawal would have been difficult under the most favorable conditions. 
with the troops tired, units mixed as a result of the fighting, communications broken, and the night dark. It was inevitable that orders should be delayed and that in some cases they should never reach the addresses. This is what, in fact, occurred. The withdrawal, necessary as it may have been, was too fast and too complicated for disorganized and exhausted troops, whose disorganization and exhaustion it only increased. End of quote. From the very beginning, the British forces had been placed too thinly spread across the 14-mile front with jungle on their right flank, monsoon-drenched rice fields and rubber plantations in the middle, and mangrove swamps to their left. The Allied lines were punctured by Yamashita's concentrated attacks and the continuous retreats of the defenders meant they lost not just men, but war equipment also. Every time a position was overrun, the men had no time to transport their vital war equipment, and the bicycle infantry made sure that they were hampered the entire time that they fled. The defeat at Jitra revealed the folly of using these undermanned troops to defend Malaya in its entirety. If they had established a defensive line further south, like at Johor, it would have at least shortened the British line of supply and extended those of the Japanese, which could have been exploited. So the Allies began withdrawing to the terrain of Gurun, which had natural defensive obstacles, and the Allies hoped to exploit them to further delay the Japanese advance. The retreat from Jitra was a disorganized disaster, and it cost Murray more casualties than the fighting that occurred at Jitra. This was largely due to the fact that many of the units at the front lines of Jitra had never even received the withdrawal orders. Other men were lost trying to cross what is called the Bata River just south of Jitra. Eventually, Murray would be forced to make another withdrawal south of the Muda River 30 miles to establish another defensive position on the Crean River. Percival, meanwhile, is completely freaking out the entire defense strategy was to hold the Japanese as far north of Singapore as possible to reduce the air threat to Singapore. But what could he do? His forces were being attacked at an incredible speed. It seemed there were simply too many of them. Percival reluctantly gave the order for a general withdrawal south of the Parak River, where he hoped to hold the Japanese in northern Malaya as long as possible. Then his commanders on the ground began to just beg for reinforcements because they were being heavily outgunned. Percival had an Australian division in Johor but could not send them north because he feared the Japanese would make a naval invasion further south and without the division Singapore could be threatened. Also since the beginning of the invasion the Malaya island of Penang had been bombed daily by the Japanese. When Yamashita's 25th army moved westward towards the stronghold of Penang, British High Command decided that Penang should be abandoned as it had no tactical or strategic value given the rapid advance of the Japanese forces. So on December the 17th, European residents were evacuated from the island 
while the local Malaya inhabitants were simply left behind to the mercy of the Japanese. The Asian people watched the whites get onto the ferries and flee to the mainland. Mrs. Muriel Riley recalled, It still hurts to think how the white race let down hundreds of similarly faithful servants who trusted in us and looked to us for protection from the hated Japanese. End of quote. Boy, you really get a taste of the perspectives back then from that quote. Well, when the Europeans were being evacuated, the British were unable to move the arms and supplies, and thus a large stockpile of it was left on Penang, and it fell into the hands of Yamashita. As for the local Malayans, they rightfully turned on their former colonial masters. Some historians now argue that the moral collapse of British rule in Southeast Asia came not at Singapore, but at Penang. Penang would suffer tremendous upheavals for the next three years and eight months of Japanese occupation. There would be food shortages, hyperinflation due to the Japanese overproduction of the banana dollar, and repression. Many Penang women were taken away as comfort women. Thousands of Penang's Chinese community were executed in what is called the Suk Ching massacres. These were systematic purges of perceived hostile elements amongst the Chinese Malayans, who the Japanese believed would become guerrilla fighters. Japanese divide and rule policies favoring the ethnic Malayans also led to an interracial tension which would persist after the war. Now we're going to turn over to Hong Kong. The defenders are going to see a brutal amount of fighting at the hands of General Sakai's forces. General Sakai is quite a character during the Pacific War. He was part of the Jinan Incident of 1928. This was a dispute between Chiang Kai-shek's NRA and the Japanese soldiers and civilians in Jinan, the capital of Shandong province. It escalated into armed conflict when the NRA was performing the famous Northern Expedition to unify China under the Kuomintang government. Sakai was part of the 12th IGA regiment there, and many Chinese historians believe he and other members of the regiment murdered Kuomintang emissaries during negotiations that occurred on May the 4th of 1928. Well, Sakai eventually found himself promoted to military intelligence and he began orchestrating a series of armed conflicts in China. His efforts awarded Japan control over Hebei province, and he earned the rank of Major General by the time of the Second Sino-Japanese War. When the order for climbing Mount Nitaka was given, Sakai was ordered to take Hong Kong in just 10 days. As we saw in the previous episodes, the new territories and Kowloon Peninsula fell really fast to the IGA. Then the famed Gin Drinkers Line was penetrated at a weak point and the defenders had to withdraw south to get onto Hong Kong Island itself. The entire time they were fleeing by the way, Punjabs are performing heroic delaying actions against the Japanese. They were some of the few defenders who were willing to partake in night fighting, 
which was a crucial element to the Japanese war strategy. Oh, they loved to fight at night. Now that all the defenders had successfully fled to Hong Kong Island, it was time for the Japanese to invade it and take the last part of Hong Kong. On December the 15th, the Japanese began to heavily bombard the island of Hong Kong after the British refused to surrender on December the 13th, and then again on December the 17th. General Sakai ordered a night assault using improvised rafts. I want to note something here. You sometimes hear about how race played a role in the Pacific War, and indeed it did. Racist attitudes were found on both the Western and Japanese side of the war. There is a fantastic book dedicated to this, by the way. It's called War Without Mercy by John Dower, and I highly recommend it. What is really interesting is how these racial attitudes actually affected decision-making during the war. Let's take General Sakai's night amphibious assault as an example. Western soldiers, such as the Canadians in Hong Kong, reported they were told by their senior commanders things like, quote, Don't worry about the Japanese. They can't see at night. They all wear glasses. Another Canadian soldier wrote in his diary, They don't see well, especially at night. We knew this as a matter of fact. Indeed, the week before the outbreak of the Battle of Hong Kong, Canadian officers attended a briefing by a British officer who informed them, quote, Japanese aircraft are mostly obsolete. Its air force has little practice in night flying, and its pilots are myopic. They're unable to carry out dive bombing attacks. You might be asking yourself, why did they think the Japanese were myopic? The scientific explanation of the day stated this. The Japanese suffered widespread inner ear damage. What caused this? Japanese motherhood. The practice of strapping babies to their mother's backs, it was explained, caused their heads to bounce about like when they harvested rice and permanently impaired their sense of balance. End of quote. It's one of my favorite quotes, by the way. One of my professors dedicated an entire class to just the bizarre racial attitudes before and after the Pacific War. They are hilarious. There was a belief the Japanese could not see well at night, Many Western Air Force commanders actually believed that there was a time of day, like at dawn or dusk, where Japanese pilots would not operate because of this perceived hindrance. You might be asking yourself, why is he poking all these funny little quirks about racial attitudes? What does this even mean? This means that commanders actually performed operations based off this as an intelligence. And a lot of people died doing like bombing runs at dusk or dawn, thinking that the Japanese wouldn't be there to attack them. I'm not making this up. American military commentator Fletcher Pratt in 1939 analyzed Japan's military strengths and explained it had four major weaknesses. 
The first was scarcity of resources such as iron and steel. The second was that Japan, quote, can neither make good airplanes nor fly them well. And as a result, the Japanese as a race has defects of the tubes of the inner ear, just as they are generally myopic. This gives them a defective sense of balance, the one physical sense in which an aviator is not permitted to be deficient in. End of quote. Well, number three was that the Japanese were short-tempered and were inclined to waste men unnecessarily when operations did not go well. The fourth was that the Japanese would simply never dare to provoke a war with the United States of America. Again, Mr. Pratt was an American military commentator whose information came from multiple accounts given by high-ranking military officials of the day. The British military maintained that the Japanese avoided night operations on land because they were simply incapable of carrying them out well. While they avoided nighttime aerial attacks, as well as dive bombing, for the same reasons, Pratt said, quote, Their pilots were poor and their aircraft inferior. End of quote. So take this all to mind when I talk about how certain ranking officers go about making their decisions. General Maltby was in charge of the defense of Hong Kong and wrote in his dispatches on the first day of the invasion, quote, Japanese night work was poor. End of quote. The very next day, the Japanese made a massive night attack on the western portion of the defensive lines. By December the 10th, the Jin Drinkers line had collapsed when the Japanese captured the Xingmun Redoubt. Very poor night attacks indeed. When the defenders of Hong Kong Island were preparing their defenses, they disregarded the idea that the Japanese would come over the water at night because they believed they couldn't see well and that they were prone to seasickness, which was another racial attitude. The racial attitudes go both ways, by the way. The Japanese military were told things about Westerners, like that they were afraid of water and would not fight in the rain, and ironically, that Westerners were afraid to fight at night. Thus, night fighting became a required training for the Japanese. Quite ironic. So imagine that. One side thinks the other can't see well at night and is told not to expect much night attacks. The other side is taught to perform night attacks because the other side is afraid to fight at night. Anyone who has read about the Pacific War knows one of the unique characteristics of it was that of the Japanese forces' night fighting capabilities. Boy, oh boy, did the Allies have it wrong in the beginning. They would find out, brutally, how well and how much the Japanese loved to fight at night. Now on December the 15th, General Sakai orders an initial amphibious assault at 9pm. Three companies try to land at Pak Sha Wan on the east side of Le Yu Moon Fort, 
but some defenders luckily had their eyes peeled and drove them off with machine guns. After the failed surprise attack, the Japanese began to use their artillery and aircraft to knock out the pillboxes and other defensive positions along the shoreline of Hong Kong Island, while simultaneously constructing enough boats to cross over the seaway. The artillery bombardment managed to destroy half the pillboxes between North Point and the Lumun Straits. The Japanese artillery also managed to hit some oil storage tanks, creating a dense black smoke which emerged over the area, giving the perfect cover for an amphibious attack. What would make things even better for the Japanese was that General Maltby was expecting the attack to come from Victoria Harbor, so all the other areas were lightly defended. General Sakai planned a two-pronged amphibious assault, embarking from the Kai Tak Airport towards the Taku Docks and another crossing over the Lehman Strait in Taiwan. And do remember, the Japanese tried to demand the surrender of the Hong Kong forces again on December the 17th, like they had tried on the 13th, but the governor, Sir Mark Young, refused yet again. Thus, at nightfall of December the 18th, at 8pm, the first wave began paddling towards the Taku dockyard and sugar refinery under the cover of artillery fire. When they reached the coast, searchlights illuminated them and Rajput defenders began to open fire. The boats scattered and both battalion commanders were injured. Soon, the Japanese artillery began to shoot more inland to hit the defenders and by midnight, six battalions managed to make it ashore. Veteran of the battle, George MacDonald, recalled the struggle that began on December the 18th when the Japanese fought to take the island. He had this to say. Our troops were extremely courageous and behaved extremely well on the battlefield. We really didn't have a chance that we could successfully defend the island. Japanese kept just pouring ashore. They were outstanding, experienced soldiers. They had a very large air force that constantly strafed at us, bombed us, and they also had a strong navy force that often shelled us from the ocean. So it was just a cauldron of hell. End of quote. The defenders were thrown into chaos by the night operation, which they were not fully prepared for, let alone the Japanese high number count, air superiority, and artillery advantage. When General Maltby found out about the Japanese attack, he thought that only two battalions had made it across on the island, and he thought that they were a diversionary force he really thought that the real attack would come across the harbor at Victoria. Thus, Mulby sent minimal reinforcements to block where the attacks had commenced, thinking they were only two battalions when in fact they were six full battalions, and then he continued to reinforce the gap across the Victoria Harbor. The Japanese had established firm beachheads and began to pour more inland. They overwhelmed the defenders and a general confusion emerged as a result of the night operations they were performing. The Rajputs who performed night operations in retaliation eventually were too overwhelmed and the Japanese began to bypass or destroy their strong points as they were headed for high grounds. And I really have to say, when you read about the Battle of Hong Kong, you really begin to see how ferocious the Rajput and Punjab soldiers were they dished back as much as they got at the Japanese. The entire time since the outbreak of the invasion, 
It's been the Indian defenders in particular who have been performing delaying actions, a lot of the time at night. Quite in general, Indian soldiers in the Pacific War are the unsung heroes. Now a bit further inland was the North Point Power Station, which was being defended by a force commandeered by Major John Johnston Patterson. The force was a Hong Kong Volunteer Defense Corps, known as the Hussalis. The recruits were older British men who had fought in World War I and the Boer War. The Japanese redirected their artillery fire on the station as the IGA rushed to capture it. The defenders fought bravely, but the artillery fire was far too much, and they had to begin withdrawing at 1.45 a.m., fighting the Japanese forces as they did over the Electric Road and King's Roads. Only a few of them survived, including Major John Johnston Patterson. In the morning of December the 19th, the Japanese began taking major key points along the coast. The beachheads were beginning to stabilize. The Royal Rifles attempted to do a counterattack and retake Li Yun Moon Fort with two platoons, but they were unable to scale the walls and over nine men died in the attempt. An IGA company managed to get into the Silesian Missionary House in She Kun Wan, which was being used as a dressing station, and they proceeded to kill all the people inside. Despite this, four men did survive. According to Captain Stanley Martin Banfill of the Royal Rifles, who witnessed his men being executed, the leading IGA officer was said to have stated, quote, Order is, all captives must die. End of quote. The Japanese troops beheaded 26 people, including male medical personnel. They let the female medical personnel out free after witnessing the beheadings. The execution of prisoners would be commonplace during the Battle of Hong Kong. Many harrowing stories will be spoken about this in future episodes through the eyes of the soldiers and civilians who witnessed it. General Maltby was beginning to realize his grave mistake putting so much defense at the space over Victoria Harbor. The Japanese had instead struck the north coast all over the place by using the night to their advantage. So now Maltby established a new defensive line at Leighton Hill as he tried to reinforce the center of the island as fast as he could. Brigadier John K. Lawson sent three platoons from the Winnipeg Grenadiers to block the Japanese advance from their landing sites. One platoon from Jardine's Lookout, one from Mount Butler, and one from Wong Ni Chung Gap. Yet it was far too late. The Japanese began to make quick work of the defenders' infantry screens, while pillboxes inflicted heavy casualties upon the Japanese, they were able to bypass them by using night attacks, and they soon captured Jardine's lookout, Mount Butler, and they surrounded the Wangnuchi Gap. So Lawson took a company of Winnipeg Grenadiers in the morning to retake Jardine's lookout and Mount Butler, and they were successful. Meanwhile, the Japanese descended upon the Wangnichung Reservoir and captured the police station there. Soon, Many defenders were trapped in the Wang Chung Gap, where machine gun fire rained upon them, making it impossible to escape. So Malpi sent a company of Royal Scots to try and reinforce the gap, but they were quickly ambushed and only 15 men made it through. 
Everything was becoming quite dire. Lawson radioed that his HQ in the Gap was completely surrounded at this point, and he said that he was going to, quote, going outside to shoot it out, end of quote. Lawson and his entire company went outside, and they were immediately killed by the Japanese machine gun fire across the Gap. Lawson died of blood loss on the hill behind his own bunker. The IGA who had seen the fight did make a note of this, stating, He died heroically. End of quote. Maltby then issued an operation order designated Order Number 6, which was a general counterattack which would commence at 5 p.m. A Punjab company were to attack the east towards North Point to relieve some defenders there, but were never able to reach them. A company of Winnipeg Grenadiers were to attack the east also towards the Wangni Chung Gap, but their backup were the Royal Scots who were late to the attack and thus both became scattered. Another company of Winnipeg Grenadiers were ordered to advance on the Wangni Chung Gap from the south but they were hit by Japanese fire from Chardin's lookout, and quickly they got pinned down for the entire day. The general counterattack order was a catastrophe. The communications had broke down, and this led to absolute disaster. At around 2 a.m., the 20th Royal Scots attacked the police station in the Wangnichong Gap, and they were quickly repulsed by a Japanese counterattack. Then Maltby ordered the headquarters company, the Winnipeg Grenadiers, to advance on the Wangnishong Gap, but they suffered heavy casualties and were stopped 300 meters short of the road when they had to move back to what's called the Black's Link. Over there, they encountered around 500 unprepared Japanese and attacked them. By 5 p.m., the Winnipeg Grenadiers exhausted their ammunition and were forced to surrender. During the last bout of fighting between them, Sergeant Major John Robert Osborne jumped on a Japanese grenade to save his comrades. He was later posthumously awarded the Victoria Cross. Maltby tried to send more and more troops to counterattack and open up the gap, but the operation was terribly planned. Many more men were ambushed trying to get there, and despite some getting close to the gap, they had to give it up. With the Wangnichung Gap firmly in the hands of the Japanese now, this meant that they also had a firm control of the center of the island. Soon, the Japanese would launch an attack on Victoria City. The situation was quite dire for Maltby. All he really could do was disperse his forces to mount limited defenses of the capital city by sending men to Mount Nicholson's line. Now, if there were any more doubts about the Japanese night fighting capabilities, I think they were gone by now. If you would like a more visual look at this event, Kings and Generals has the Battle of Hong Kong on their YouTube channel, and I can't recommend it enough. It's very well done. Go give it a look. Over on my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, I do also happen to have an episode dedicated to the Battle of Hong Kong, but I will note, it was actually a bizarre accident that it occurred. I had invited a guest to talk about the Battle of Hong Kong, but he literally summarized the entire battle off the top of his head, 
so I felt the need to try and edit in and make it a documentary. It's interesting to say the least because it's narrated by someone else, but give it a look if you want. Now we are going to go right back to the beginning when we were talking about this soon-to-be invasion of Borneo. On December the 13th, the Kawaguchi detachment of around 4,500 men had left the Kamran Bay in 10 transports heading to British-held Borneo. Sir Brooke Popham had predetermined that Sarawak could not be defended in the event of a Japanese attack. And soon, as word came about the Pearl Harbor attack on December the 8th, he ordered the demolition of the oil fields in Miri and Sera, as well as their joint refinery in Lutong. All of the Allied commanders knew the end goal of Japan's Strike South policy was to grab the oil fields of North Borneo and the Dutch East Indies. The region was the fourth largest exporter of oil after the United States, Iran, and Romania, with a gross output of 65 million barrels of oil per year. The Kawaguchi detachment successfully and secretly landed on Miri and Syria in the early hours of December the 16th. They were met with very little resistance and quickly occupied the oil fields and airfields with ease. Brooke Popham explained, quote, The only place which it was decided to hold was Kuching. The reason for this being not only that there was a modern airfield at this location, but that its occupation by the enemy might give them access to the Dutch airfields in Borneo. Furthermore, it would also give the enemy access to Singapore. End of quote. Some other Japanese marines had also landed on the coast near Lutong, and they managed to occupy the oil refinery there. The Japanese engineers immediately began to restore the damaged oil fields, while Kawaguchi prepared his forces for what was to be the main assault on Kuching. Then the following day, some Dutch reconnaissance from Singawang learnt of the Japanese invasion, and they launched an air attack. Dutch-piloted Martin B-10 bombers attempted to bomb the Japanese shipping around Miri, but this ultimately led to no results. This was followed up by another attack by three Dornier Du-24K German-made flying boats. One ended up getting shot down, but another landed a bomb on the destroyer Shinonome, causing a massive explosion and sinking her within minutes. This killed over 228 of her crew. More B-10 bombers made attacks on Miri between December the 18th to the 19th, but had to retire to Sumatra when their airfield at Singawang was discovered by the Japanese. Soon, the Japanese would begin their attack. But before we continue the story of Borneo, we do need to catch up a little bit in the Philippines. So meanwhile, in the Philippines, the Japanese would attack the economic center of southern Mindanao Island, Davao. Davao was a concern to the IGN because it held a U.S. naval base and was only 500 miles away from the major Japanese military center of the Western Pacific on Palau. The Japanese also wanted to take the southern islands of the Philippines to create more launching points so that they can make further attacks on places like Dutch-held Borneo. In a previous episode, I mentioned the seaplane tender USS William B. Preston 
had been attacked on December the 8th by 13 dive bombers, escorted by 9 fighters. This was all launched by the IGN carrier Bijo. The Sakaguchi and Muria detachments, some 5,000 men, led by Major General Shizio Sakaguchi and Lieutenant Colonel Toshio Muria, would land under the cover of night to take the city's defenders by surprise. Davio was protected by a single regiment of 2,000 men of the Philippine Commonwealth Army, the 101st Infantry. They were led by Lieutenant Colonel Roger B. Hillsman, and like most of the Philippine Army, this regiment was only partially trained and suffered from a major shortage of equipment. At midnight of December the 19th, the IGN transports arrived and by 4 a.m. the Mura detachment landed to the north, while the Sakaguchi detachment landed southwest of the city. The Mura detachment saw only a single machine gun squad fire upon them as they made their landing, but the IGN destroyer landed a single shell shot on the squad, completely eradicating them. Nonetheless, the Mura detachment suffered some heavy casualties. Major General Sakaguchi was forced to order some of his forces reserved for attacks on Jolo forward as the defenders were resisting tenaciously where he was. Together, both detachments stormed and took the city by midday, pushing the Filipino defenders behind Davao River. Upon entering Davao, the Japanese soldiers received cheers from the sizable Japanese population of the city. The local Japanese population had been detained in warehouses since the outbreak of the war. The capturing of the city had not been easy, however. The Mura detachment had been pretty battered, so they were going to garrison Davao and continue the liberation of its Japanese inhabitants. Meanwhile, this left Sakaguchi's detachment to prepare to launch an operation against Jolo, the capital of the Sulu Islands. Once that was captured, they could use that as a launch point to attack Tarakan in Dutch-held Borneo. If you know a bit about the Pacific War, then you would know one of the main themes of it is that of island hopping. A lot of people are aware that the United States strategy by the end of the war was to take each island in a chain leading up to the Japanese home islands, securing airfields and harbors to protect convoys and forces all along the way to the ultimate goal. Well, the same thing is kind of being played out here by the Japanese. In order to take such vast territory in the Pacific, the Japanese had to secure multiple airfields and harbors on all of these islands to make something like a defensive net. And boy oh boy, are there a lot of these islands to take. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And if after all that you are still hungry for some history content, why don't you give my personal channel a look over at the Pacific War Channel at YouTube. It would mean a lot to me. It's getting depressing for the Allied forces, so I want to leave you with this. Back on December the 10th, Admiral Kimmel created Task Force 14 under the command of Rear Admiral Frank Fletcher with the carrier Saratoga. Well, they left Pearl Harbor on December the 15th, heading as fast as they could 
to reinforce the brave defenders of Wake Island. Alongside this, Kimmel created Task Force 11 under Rear Admiral Wilson Brown, who had the legendary carrier Lexington. Brown would sail out to strike at the Japanese bases at Jalut to divert the IGN from Fletcher's force. The defenders of Wake knew help was on the way. America was not out of the fight for the Pacific just yet. Come back next time where we will continue the battle for Wake, Malaya, the Philippines, and Hong Kong.